we want to be there to try to help the small startups like you talked about. There's a lot of innovation coming on in BC, but it needs to be sort of incubated. It needs to be helped along. And that's where, you know, ABCA sort of sees their role. Welcome to a bit cryptic podcast where we interview top crypto experts to take you down the rabbit hole into the world of cryptocurrency. Now, it's time to get a bit cryptic. Hey folks, it's Dang here, Chief Editor and co-host of Bit Cryptic. This is a continuation of our trek here in Washington, D.C., the nation's capital. I've been talking with crypto and blockchain pioneers. The more time I spend here, the more it confirms my thinking that this is a really an innovative hub. And today I have a special guest who will be talking to us about um, the, their project in, in this area and a little bit about the, the crypto scene and the different innovative projects they see in, in the landscape. So I'm sitting with Howard Greenberg, who is the president of the American Blockchain and Crypto Currency Association, or ABCA. He's a veteran in the liquor supply industry. Ted Kowalski is a senior executive in Washington, D.C. He works at a federal agency. He has a 20-year background in cybersecurity, banking, financial services. He's also a board member of the American Blockchain and Cryptocurrency Association. And really, uh, I first, I, I want to understand, you know, like, how did both of you get involved in crypto? Because uh, often the story is um, someone uh, has heard about Bitcoin or, or a friend introduced into Bitcoin, and then, you know, they, they became skeptical. What is this silly thing? And then they go through several levels of mistrust, and they come back again. They get all stoked, and now they're the evangelists at the bar. So, uh, so Howard, like, tell me a little about Absolutely. I got into crypto in January of 2017. And just like you said, a friend on Facebook that I uh, always valued as investment advice put a thing out there just saying, you know, hey, to his friends, what are you guys doing? Are you guys investing? What exchanges are you using? What are you investing in? And I took notice from that and listened to the comments. And from there, started on Coinbase with Bitcoin, Litecoin, and Ethereum, like pretty much everybody else. And but from there started to follow the evangelist, whether it be Roger Veer or, you know, uh, Charlie Lee or whomever, and really started just to delve more and more into it. And as I did, I found that there were more and more people down here that I knew that were doing the same things and sort of started talking with Ted and other people about it. And from there, it's just grown over the last, you know, year and a half. Yeah, so so my interest really was a progression. Um, I first started looking into blockchain technologies in late 2016, early 2017. And really, my background is working in for the past 20 years in IT cybersecurity, systems architecture, financial services IT, international banking operations. And I think I was most intrigued at the concept of blockchain as a real architectural revolution on the traditional end-tier architecture that had emerged uh, post-dot-com uh, era. I think you know something that I'm very interested in is cybersecurity, resilience. And I think one thing that really intrigued me with blockchain was the ability to provide a new security model and architecture to address a lot of the issues that organizations and individuals spend significant resources on nowadays. When you think about the amount of you know, time, money, and talent dedicated to protecting databases, um, when you think about business continuity, resilience, the traditional um, security triad, confidentiality, integrity, availability, blockchain was really a fundamental revolution on the traditional model, which is simply build higher walls, build thicker walls, and you can eventually avert the security threat. And I think what 
people are realizing is that in the aftermath of all the data disclosures of the past five to ten years, that the threats are becoming more and more sophisticated. Um, stateless actors, state-sponsored actors, individual hackers, the, the proverbial lone gunman, are all posing greater and greater threats to the integrity of data. And I think blockchain really, what interested me the most and why I spent significant time over is thinking about how this is just a new model in terms of how to protect resources and a model I think that's going to become more and more important, particularly as we move closer and closer to the future Internet of Things, especially when you see estimates talking about how by the year 2020 we're, we're going to be looking at about 50 billion smart devices or Internet-enabled devices. The threat surface area is becoming more sophisticated, more complicated, more complex, and I think that blockchain technology really presents an interesting blueprint for what the future security model might look like in terms of distributing data, protecting data, and adding resilience to the global information resource uh, uh, chain. Well, that's fascinating. When you talk about crypto is all, and blockchain, is all about the the network effect, right? And it goes the same with uh, social relationships and social social capital. And so, like, who do you go to for, for resources? I mean, in, here in, in the nation's capital in D.C.? Because some people often would uh, think of about Silicon Valley or even even Colorado now. Uh, there's a, there's a there's a an, an active hub of innovation. Um, New York City, obviously, because of the major financial capital. Tell me a little bit about the, the, the community here and, and the scene. Sure. We, we've seen it on two different levels. There's, you know, a lot being done in the public sector on small scales, whether it be smart cities. We've uh, spoken on some panels there with them. They have a good group here in D.C. Uh, we've also seen a lot of academia get involved in D.C. MIT Sloan just did a panel with PwC for senior executives in the federal government on federal credits. We've seen a lot of that. I can probably speak to some others. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, there's a really robust meetup community here in Washington, mm -hmm. D.C. And I think true to form as to what how the blockchain technology really exists, I think a lot of the thought leadership and intellectual blood bank, as it were, is really decentralized, where it's lots of pockets of folks coming together with ideas, creative solutions, and, and trying to prove them out, which I think is exciting, but is also very frustrating. You know, I think one of the conversations we've had with particularly folks on the federal side and the public sector side is the lack of education out there and the lack of formal um, engagement is causing a major is causing a major obstacle I think to a lot of organizations willingness to entertain and embrace blockchain technology uh, it, it's hard to find people who understand it you know particularly on the federal side which is of course the largest employer in the Washington DC region mm -hmm. you know, when you think about the, the federal government being a, a consumer of services you know, we were at a panel uh, speaking to a CFO for a fairly large agency. So they, uh, you know, they paid a consultant to come in and paid a five a five figure consulting fee for an hour long lunch and learn to talk about blockchain technology. And as as they put it, yeah. after the consultant left, they they were more confused than before the first time. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we literally were at a panel, like yeah. I said, that uh, that Ted actually spoke on, and um, David Fragali from Autonomy actually mm -hmm. just uh, just did a, a quick intro to blockchain, and people's faces were blown away because they didn't. They had no concept. They think blockchain is Bitcoin. Bitcoin is blockchain. It's one item. They think that if they use it, there could be porn on there that they could be having on their computers because they've seen that information, and they want to know how that would work at you know at SBA or at at, at FHA. How can they run a node there if they therefore if there's things like that? There's just so much confusion, and they literally they they want to dip their toes in, but they're afraid to because there's not enough people to facilitate their needs to, you know, there's no, you know, for every, in DC, pretty much for every blockchain job out there, 
there or for 40 jobs, there's only one applicant that's actually qualified. Yeah, and I think that, you know, beyond education, beyond, you know, being caught up in the hype cycle. So right now, particularly in Washington, so many of the executives and decision makers really equate blockchain and Bitcoin. You know, they see the two as one and the same, and it's very difficult. You know, the same panel, we were talking to another person from an agency, and it was, uh, it was a little bit surprising in the conversation to actually pull back the curtains to unveil this person that Satoshi Nakamoto is not an actual identified person. person. <laughs> and I was kind of speaking with this person who's in charge of a multi-billion dollar portfolio right. and had no concept that that was not an actual identified person who's mm -hmm. been interviewed and kind of been out there in the press. And so I think that, you know, I think that the layers are being pulled back. I think engagement is occurring. You know, there are other trade associations that are engaging. You know, there are other financial services trade associations. I think certainly this is one of the impetuses behind the American Blockchain and Cryptocurrency Association is to really contribute to that dialogue and really help individuals understand both how the technology works, but more importantly, what those pockets of innovation look like and what the proof of concepts look like. Because I think one of the biggest challenges that people don't understand is they assume when they read about Bitcoin, when they hear about blockchain, they hear about all these things, that there is a robust set of enterprise implementations that exist and that companies can simply sign up to say, well, we're going to deploy that as, as you know, 10 years or 10, 20 years ago when, when I was working in IT, people would say, okay, well, I want to implement an enterprise resource planning platform, ERP. So let's just go out and buy an ERP package. And I think one challenge is right now going on is that a lot of firms and a lot, particularly a lot of federal agencies just assume, well, we'll just sign up the blockchain. Let's just implement a blockchain package. And so once you get into the nuances of, okay, first off, blockchain is different than crypto. When you talk about blockchain, are you talking about, you know, are you talking about public blockchains or are you talking about private they blockchains? No, they had no idea that they could even have a private blockchain. Mm -hmm. yeah. know, they didn't understand that they, you know, Hyperledger was available or anything else. In their mind, they look at it as this thing that has to be shared with the world, and that sort of scares the federal mm -hmm. government for a lot of reasons in mm -hmm. D.C. And I think that's one of the things going on. So I think it's been heartening, but I think it's also been a little bit... I think that process of educating decision makers in Washington has been a little bit stymied because, you know, the reality is, and I don't think this is any great secret in the world, and this is something we engage with our members quite a bit um, as well, the overarching atmosphere of D.C. is really watching this triage go on between the regulatory agencies as to what a cryptocurrency is. Okay. And that dialogue is continuing to play out. It's going to play out for... Right. The and we're actually seeing that they're sort of almost each of the, the three major... You know, whether it be the SEC, the CFTC, or Treasury, all of them sort of are taking steps back away from it and hoping the other person will take the lead. Right. No so for, for our audience, don't know much about the, the Washington, D.C. landscape. The SEC is the Security Exchange Commission, and the CFTC is a, another regulatory body who's, if you're in crypto, you, you definitely are heard of those two. And then U.S. Treasury, they have an, an arm there who's interested in, you know, enforcing uh, anti-money laundering and terrorist financing rules and, and regulations. And so those three regulatory bodies are, are headquartered here in D.C., right? So from ranging from 1 to 10, how good are you feeling about those regulatory agencies in terms of, like, being fully brief and having a well-informed view of, of the, where this industry, this technology is going? I'd say maybe it's 6. 6? Okay. It's, it's actually embarrassing. And like I said, we literally, we were at a panel, we, we showed them that, you know, a flashcard can hold the entire blockchain for Bitcoin. They had no idea. They thought that, you know, you need supercomputers to, to run a node. They literally don't have a concept of it at all. You know, it's interesting because because outside D.C., you know, this, there's there's a lot of press 
uh, and coverage uh, about you know what the SEC and the CFTC uh, are doing. Maybe this is part of the noise and the hype out there, but it seems like every day we're hearing something that SEC commissioner is saying because he had private briefing and he learned some new developments about the the market. And so it just seems like people have this perception that either you know they they spend a great a great deal of time learning about this technology, or they just really not sure about where they stand in things, and they're still trying to sort things out, and they're really being lurched from one position to the next, whether you know Ethereum is a security or not, and whether Bitcoin is a security or not. So anyways, what are you about that? Oh, I think there's a couple of things there. With the current administra- administration, there's a lot to be said to just keeping the norms. People are, you know, sort of don't want to speak up. They don't want to get in trouble with their bosses. They don't need any issues coming from the executive, you know, branch. So they're not really speaking up right now. You know, mm-hmm. they're, A, they're understaffed. B, they're, they're sort of just, it's, there's so much stuff going on, it's getting lost in the laundry. There's so much things going on that are more important to them that they're trying to do, whether it be North Korea or, you know, everything else going on, the trade tariffs and everything else, that they're, they're not spending the time is mm-hmm. what we're seeing and what, what we talk to them. Also, in terms of, you know, because we're in D.C. and Congress essentially represents the, the people. So, like, on a scale of 1 to 10, how do you rate Congress in terms of the, the, their knowledge and awareness of, of this technology? Well, I think that, you know, and again, you know, my opinions are mine and mine alone, obviously. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that Congress is actually coming along very quickly and coming up to speed very quickly on this technology. I think with the Congressional Blockchain Caucus and other groups out there, I think there are a number of very savvy um, members of Congress who are understanding the transformative nature of this technology, but also understanding that this technology does not exist in a vacuum. And I think that's really what a lot of people are looking at, is that there needs to be coordinated evolution, not just of technical standards and patterns, but also the regulatory environment, the legal environment, to allow agencies as well as organizations and, and private enterprises to experiment a bit more. I think one of the things that's been very interesting, you've seen, uh, I think this was recently profiled publicly of an upcoming um, policy paper coming out of the federal government related to blockchain technology, and the American Bankers Association published something recently about two months ago about the need to allow financial services organizations to have greater flexibility and freedom to engage with fintech firms. And one of the challenges under the Basel Accords is that you know, allowing banks to experiment with these innovative, disruptive technologies, it's very difficult for them to partner with firms that specialize. And I think that there is a willingness and desire to allow greater creativity, to allow firms to take more risks and take greater chances using the technology. And the question is how the laws need to evolve, if they need to evolve at all. And I think it's still to be determined exactly what, you know, how much momentum there's going to be in, in, in some of these areas and how much there needs to be legislatively and how much of it's simply a matter of organizations taking a chance. Because certainly, you know, we've been talking to a lot of a lot of representatives from financial firms. I've been talking to the head of debt markets for a large investment bank based on Wall Street, and they're experimenting with using blockchains for underwriting and securitization right now, small-scale proof concepts to prove the technology out. And I think you're going to see a lot more of this. And, and of course, with market caps the way they are, kind of with blockchain technology becoming part of you know the zeitgeist, become, becoming part of the um, public awareness, People are asking the question, and I think constituents are asking the question, how can the federal government use blockchain technology? How can private enterprises use blockchain technology? And then, of course, you, know, you have countries out there like Estonia that are experimenting with these technologies and putting 90% plus percent of their public administration services on technical infrastructure. 
uh, to provide you know better services, faster services, cheaper services. I think there's two parts of that too, because there's the blockchain versus the cryptocurrency mm -hmm. aspect yeah, of that. I think that, like Ted said, they, they're very active in, in learning what the blockchain, and that's what we're saying. Mm -hmm. They're scared by the cryptocurrency aspect of it. They don't understand when we talk about microtransactions with them again at that at our last one with the federal executives. They didn't understand what a microtransaction was. They were saying, okay, so why if, if Bitcoin isn't worth 20000 then why would someone run a node? Yeah. You know, down the road, why are people going to run nodes? And you, we were trying to explain to them microtransactions right. are the wave of the future. It's going to be, like you said, $50 billion IoT devices on, you know, connected to the internet at some point, and in return for giving information from that, you're going to get small micropayments. Yeah. It's actually the utility tokens yeah. versus, you know, the, and that's a big part. I don't think a lot of people understand utility token versus, uh, you know, a hold of security like a, a Bitcoin. You yeah. know, what's the difference between Ethereum and Bitcoin? Most people don't have any idea. Right. Back to Congress, I think is a very interesting, a very unique uh, institution. I mean, to be fair, because the, the, they're so busy and they have to deal with a, a, a wide, a breadth of subject matters, and you know, there's just stretch. And and so, uh, so contrast to to other uh, large institutions here in DC. You know, I I just interviewed the the World Bank Blockchain Innovations Lab, and and folks there are are quite sophisticated in their view. They 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 understand that. Let's say with with cryptocurrencies, there are real benefits there. Let's say in in global remittances, Absolutely. right? Because being inspired and and leveraging that kind of technology can really help the World Bank achieve its mission of uh, ending extreme poverty and, and you know promoting shared prosperity. Also, their their sister uh, organization, the IMF International Monetary Fund, um, they they also is not shy about speaking publicly on on where the crypto uh, market is at and and um, the risks involved and also the opportunities. And so so it's, I think it's an interesting contrast. Well, it is, and it was funny. Ted and I were looking at something today that sixteen percent of all ICOs are still coming out of the U.S. I didn't realize it was that high. Mm -hmm. They're by far number one. You know, it seems like the world is leading us to to this new spot and this new destructive technology, but quite honestly, a lot of it's being done in the U.S. So Congress mm -hmm. needs to start to step up before we lose that, yeah. you know, and is it going to be Congress or is states yeah. like Wyoming going to make their own laws? Yeah. And are those laws going to hold up also? Yeah. So Ted, you were mentioning the Congressional Blockchain Caucus. Now, now whose job is it, is it to keep them long form, right? Is it, I mean, are they, is it because uh, they'll be, um, flying days where uh, private industry participants like IBM, you know, Intel, Microsoft, you know, crypto startups um, from Silicon Valley or S Singapore or what have you, are they flying into to brief uh, this caucus uh, on, on this technology and, and, and what's happening? Like, like whose job it is to, to keep the blockchain caucus uh, well informed? Well, I think, you know, I, I think that true to form, when it comes down to blockchain technologies and any kind of innovative technology, I think that the decision makers are relying upon what is going on in terms of private industry and what's going on in the entrepreneurial space mm -hmm. to set the tempo in terms of what the world of possibility, yeah. uh, you know, what the world of possible is. Um, and I think that one thing that we've seen and, and we've talked about, and I don't think this is really any any great secret to to your listeners or to anyone in the world, is that DC is really a city with a you know a professional advocacy industry, yep, yep, um, and yep. there are a lot of organizations in Washington DC who specialize on ensuring that um, that stakeholders who have the resources and have the time are, are able to make their voice heard. And I think there are a lot of groups out there right now jockeying to be the first ones to stand up and talk about what blockchain means. But in many many cases, that vision of blockchain is very much parochial. It's very much based yeah. on 
the needs of particular a particular stakeholders right. who can right. access the right. resources. Right. And I think that whether it's ABCA, the, you know, the group that Howard is the president of and that we're involved in here, the American Blockchain Cryptocurrency Association, I think we're really trying to help educate the decision makers so they can understand the technology because the technology is, is truly disruptive. Yeah. You know, I think about this in very personal terms, if I might you know, have a moment to talk a little bit to you and to your listeners about it. You know, my father worked in commercial trucking and transportation his entire career. You know, and the statistics are there are approximately 3.5 million truck drivers in the United States and another 5.2 million people who support the commercial trucking industry. So you're talking long haul, short haul, local. You know, I talked to, to my dad once when I was growing up and he made the comment, when you walk into a store, everything you see in the store was brought on a truck. It did not just magically appear there. So you're talking about 8.7 million people whose careers are based on a industry predicated upon an individual sitting behind a wheel and moving a truck and moving cargo. Mm -hmm. And the question is, when you talk about Tesla coming out with autonomous vehicles, these things are great. The technologies are amazing. They can reduce accidents. They can provide greater public safety. They can be more efficient, better energy consumption, use of resources. But at the end of the day, it's putting you know potentially millions of jobs at stake. And it, it's going to force members of Congress and decision makers at all level of local, state, and federal governance to think through what does this mean in terms of the population when some of these jobs and careers, you know, my father worked in commercial trucking, his father founded a commercial trucking firm, his grandfather worked in commercial trucking as well. These are multi-generational industries that are being disrupted very quickly. And the disruption is coming at such a pace like we've never seen before. You know, when I was speaking on this panel at MIT, Sloan, I love telling the story. The first historical reference to a taxi cab was in 1605 in London. Wow. You know, and then you think about how taxi cabs became a global enterprise. Every major city, there were unions, they were licensed. You think about places like London with the historic black cabs. They're part of the cultural identity. There were TV shows, there were movies. And then all of a sudden, car sharing came along. And then in 2008, 2009, Uber came along. And the question I posed to the audience was, raise your hand here if in the past month you've taken more taxis than you have car sharing services like Uber and Lyft. And no one raised their hands. And I said, this is a 400-year-old industry, which in less than a decade has been completely disrupted. And that's not to say the industry is ever going to go away. It may never go away, but it's never going to be what it was. And it's not the only industry that's primed for that kind of disruption. And I think the more decision makers understand about what's coming, you know, the more educated they can get on tackling the longer-term questions, which is not a function of, well, what is this tech disruption going to look like, but how do we adjust to the disruption once it comes? Right. I, I certainly agree. I mean, uh, the pace of innovation has, has really kicked, yeah, kicked, like, really at a big accelerated level. And you, you talk about this disruptors become disrupted. You know, uh, Airbnb. Yeah, yeah, your company that you Yeah, have Airbnb, yeah. They, for sure, they've, they've really helped to push the sharing economy. Uh, but then, you know, now they uh, potentially face disruption from uh, blockchain-based uh, models uh, where you're decentralizing uh, the home sharing services. Hosts and, 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 and renters, they'll be able to facilitate that services uh, with, uh, uh, with the utility token. Well, so, you know, yeah. and the funny thing is, like we were musing about this earlier, you know, um, when I was living in London, the big story in 2007, 2008 was the coming of the docked bike share. And then we moved to Washington, D.C. in 2010, capital bike share came along. And then all of a sudden, the next it was dockless bikes, and then it was dockless scooters. Yeah, and this has been just in the past five years. 
And and wow. I think that that, trans, yeah. that transformation is happening yeah. so rapidly, and well, it's going to happen. We've been seeing it disrupt in the metro system. Yeah. You know, the metro is losing more and more money every every year. And one of the reasons that they brought up was bike shares mm. and all the other things. Okay. It's giving people an easy yeah. way to get the seven blocks you used to do two mm. stops on the metro. You can do it in five minutes, like Josh was saying, on his way to work. You know, you can get to work quicker to yeah. use the scooter than you can taking the metro. Yeah. So let's let's go back to how DC. You know, it has heavy representation here in the terms that there, there's a lot of trade association, there, there are advocacy bodies here. Uh, we were talking about the Congressional Blockchain Caucus, whose job it is to really advise them on, on the happenings in, in, in this sector. So although, you know, I mean, Ted, you didn't mention explicitly, but, you know, I, I can think of some, some, some major players uh, who are active. For example, the Chamber of Digital Commerce, I know that's, you know, immediately comes to mind when you're talking about, you know, heavy representation. I mean, if I think that they may be the largest trade association uh, for the blockchain industry in this country, for sure, but maybe even perhaps the world. And then the, there's um, uh, think tanks uh, like the Coin Center, who, who does uh, a terrific job, it's kind of like focusing um, the education on the open permission, permissionless uh, blockchains like Bitcoin. I know they're, they're they have kind of a staunch advocacy and a staunch position to to push for um, for for those open protocols. Let's sort of delve into the the association that that you both are are working with. Um, so tell us a little bit about um, about that, and you know, uh, what, what is the motivation there, and what what is you trying sure. to do? Our focus is more on the global community of individuals who have vested interest in these technologies, but so far have been priced out of the market. You know, quite honestly, that the other players in the market are more for the one percenters. Yeah, well, what is it called again? Yeah, so for folks. Oh, American Blockchain and Cryptocurrency okay. Association. Yeah. Sorry. Okay. You know, we're looking more individual members. We are uh, don't have any of the, the cryptocurrency exchanges as part of our membership. We don't ex- and, and tend to. We're we're there for we're there really as facilitators. What we've been doing is putting the right people together, whether it be on the public sector, you know, where they're asking because there isn't enough blockchain professionals. Can they get some help getting in contact with people, whether it be a middleware company like Expressa, who's try- out there trying to give an easier way to get people up to the blockchain? They're looking for, you know, hyperledger people and experts. We're, we're really dealing with that. One of our values during times of technology evolution, there are organizations who focus on ensuring that corporations are plugged into the Washington machine. The corporations are able to afford a seat at the table. You know, therefore, they're enabled to play a bigger role in shaping how a technology evolves. In the case with these particular technologies, it's very peer-to-peer based. We want to be there to try to help the small startups like you talked about. There's a lot of innovation coming on in D.C., but it needs to be sort of incubated. It needs to be helped along, and that's where ABCA sort of sees their role. And then we're also very, very involved in academia. We've been dealing with professors, whether it be locally at George Washington at American University or MIT Sloan Harvard Business School, and trying to get curriculums put together in a fast time so that we don't lose this, you know, opportunity and it goes overseas quickly. And then also to get, you know, the mentors for these kids. There are a lot of kids out there that are actually more, you know, educated in blockchain than we think, but they just need a little bit of mentorship shown the way through the door. I think, you know, one thing that, that we at ABCA really focus on is, you know, at the end of the day, these technologies all emerged post-financial crisis in an environment that was really about a reaction to a perceived lack of trust with intermediaries, whether it was firms that managed data, collected data, whether it was financial institutions. And I think that we really see, at least, you know, Howard's vision, I think, behind, and the, the vision of the board as well, 
Pine ABCA is really it's an environment where individuals can sign up, become members, plug into Washington, get an insight into what the psychology of the environment's like in terms of you know what future policy could look like, what uh, what developments are going on. We work a lot with different organizations, different you know we're talking all the time with entrepreneurs, with different educational institutions. I mean, one thing I do in my capacity as a board member of ABCA is I'm also an editor for what's going to be the world's first blockchain uh, peer-reviewed scientific journal called Frontiers in Blockchain, launching, I think, later this summer. And they're really looking to provide intellectual rubric around the development of blockchain technology for the long term. So this isn't specific to, you know, what is the price of Bitcoin today versus tomorrow versus yesterday. It's really thinking through and, and trying to create a community, and I think ABCA is part of that community, of bringing together interested parties and the folks who are driving and, like you said, incubating the creativity that's going to define how the technology evolves in the long term and how that technology winds up becoming a major platform across industries. So I think that's one thing that's, that's lacking right now is, as much as there is not coordination, the success of any technology platform in the world has always been based on the emergence of certain patterns of understanding. You know, if you think about whether it's object-oriented programming, if you think it's about well, multi-factor authentication, if you think about cryptography, you know, the way to make these technologies really take off is once you begin to have middleware solutions, better tools, once you begin to have patterns of successful deployment. And I think ABCA is trying to position ourselves really as the group that's bringing together the people that are defining and creating those patterns and getting them to communicate with one another and create a community of, of, of interaction at a very individual, granular level. You know, the, the larger scale policy questions with regard to cryptocurrencies, with regard to long-term regulations, I think there are plenty of groups out there that are playing a robust role in moving that dialogue forward. And I think ours is a little bit, you know, our vision is a little bit more humble in that we're really about trying to give access to the software developer in Switzerland or the cryptocurrency trader in Switzerland. Well, really a trade association as opposed to an advocacy association. Exactly. And I think we're trying to create an environment and allow those people to have an access point into Washington, D.C. Okay. So let's touch on that last point. I mean, one could argue that this, this kind of trade solution could be set up anywhere. And so what, what's the competitive advantage of, of having it here in D.C. saying that Potentially, you'll you'll be able to plug them into the uh, the conversation uh, of um, policymakers. I mean, is is like what what can members uh, expect? You know, what, what kind of services um, w will there be? You know, like will, will you hold events? Will you uh, hold uh, forums? Yeah. There will be events and forums, but more more of our stuff is is based upon trying to facilitate people together. We we we're just doing working groups, whether it be with the federal government. I think why we have advantage in D.C. is people that do want to get into the, the public sector that are looking at that. I mean, it is the largest employer in the U.S. You know, it always has been. It always will be. It's where more money will get moved than any place else. You know, we'll be able to facilitate some of that being here in D.C. for that. But quite frankly, no. I mean, our board members are from around the United States and around the world. You know, that it is a global thing like we talked about. My, one of my favorite projects is AgriLedger. And not one of their board of members are from the same country. You know, they're from Australia, then you know Switzerland to Singapore. And that's what's great about blockchain. You don't need to be in the same room to work together to do it. Nowadays, whether it be Skype or any other facility, like Telegram, Trello, there's a million different productivity software programs out there to help you do this from there. But for us, it's tying into the public sector, the federal market, and what we have in D.C. 
is definitely our advantage. We are, we will eventually go more into the public policy part of it. We just see right now that the dearth of or where our spot is compared to everybody else's, a lot of people are attacking public policy, especially when it comes to crypto. You know, we're looking more at actually proof of concepts and, and trying to get acting, you know, the federal agencies to actually act with blockchain. Have you launched yet? And is this something that you are working to launch? Or? Yeah, so, so the nonprofit uh, soft launched a couple months ago, and we've been spending a lot of time kind of having meetings with uh, interested strategic partners, trying to sort out what our membership board looks like for our different advisory committees. Um, you know, your uh, your listeners should be able to visit our website at uh, www.abcaonline.org. Um, and actually, our new members portal is just launching. Just soft launched last week, and is going out with a major public push next week. And the members portal is linked off of our normal website, but is also available at www.abcamembers.org. And folks can go out and check out kind of what our current board looks like, kind of what our mission is. Uh, if they're interested, obviously they're welcome to to sign up and see what the proprietary analysis looks like from our board members and the different people we're talking to. So they can actively sign up now. They can. Yes. Okay. Yep. And kind of, you know, again, we take it very much from the perspective of we are a membership group. If you sign up and you're interested and you like what you're getting, you like what you're hearing from Washington, from our experts, again, we're rolling out our services over the next few months in terms of events, in terms of other white papers, webinars, podcasts, etc. But it's very much if you like what it is, you can be a member. And if you don't like, then that's, that's perfectly yeah, all right. I mean, we're literally $19.99 a month to join. And you join on a monthly basis and you re-sign up every, well, you, you keep it recurring, but... You end it whenever you want your relationship. It isn't a, you know, a two thousand, three thousand, five thousand dollar membership to 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 see what we have going on. It's very affordable. And again, we're not, you know, we are a, the, you know, I think where we are different than a lot of other organizations is we are a legally registered five hundred one c six trade association. You know, we are a not for profit. Very proud of being a not for profit. All of our board members, you know, we are all on a volunteer, unpaid basis. Um, our organization is really a community of active practitioners in their own industries coming together to help lead this dialogue for all the, for all of our members. At the end of the day, any uh, any uh, money that comes into the organization, we really plan on plowing back into programming for our members, whether it be educational opportunities, scholarship opportunities, events here in Washington or elsewhere. And I think that's something that we're very proud of and really differentiates what the potential of the ABCA is and really adheres to the spirit of what blockchain is all about in terms of being decentralized peer-to-peer for the individual. Open sourced. Yeah, so folks, just uh, look out for that. They'll be uh, having a, a stronger presence and really pushing out uh, their their initial launch now really into like full force in the coming months. On the last note, I just want you know with with every guest we have uh, on on our show, I'm curious on how do you see the the technology? How how will it evolve in the next you know one one or two years, two two three two or three years? So any predictions? Like anything that that really excites you? Well, for me, it's more just to see, you know, these projects that have been, that a lot of people have put a lot of money into as they come into fruition. How do they develop and how does things move to these microtransactions within cryptocurrency? I think that's going to be the big change. Right now, people buy utility tokens as a storage of value, and I don't think that will be the case moving forward. I think people will see the light that you'll buy as many Tron as you need to, you know, use on their, you know, their mainnet. And if it, you know you don't have a use for it, you probably won't invest anymore that way. Ted? Yeah, I mean, I really, you know, I think the technology, what you're going to see is a lot more successful patterns and implementations coming out. 
I think you're going to see a lot more standardization of tools, which are going to make the development of products on whether they be public or private blockchains a lot more cost effective. You know, we're talking to a couple firms that are getting ready to roll out middleware solutions that'll make development on blockchains a lot easier. I really am interested and intrigued about seeing where the transformation going to come, particularly at the national level. You know, one thing I think has been interesting, I've been talking to a former prime minister of a, a European Union nation, a country that's heavily involved in passing laws as we speak to really reform the regulatory environment to promote the use of blockchain for civil service, public administration, uh, public financial management. And I'm really intrigued because I think that one thing that's really that's really uncertain right now is post-crisis, post-data disclosures, post-breaches of privacy information, you know, people are really looking to governments nationally and internationally to, to really step forward and take an opportunity to reassert trust with their citizenry. And I think how countries go about embracing blockchain and how this dialogue plays out is going to be very interesting to see. I think you're seeing some countries already, whether it's Estonia or Malta or other countries, really at the forefront. And I think other countries are, are approaching things more skeptically. But I think ultimately you're going to see everyone moving forward along this path. And I think that it's going to be exciting to see. It's going to be exciting times to see how the notion of public administration and governance really evolves as a result of the technology. It becomes a little bit more of a mature technology. I think that's some very interesting predictions. Just leaving with folks, you know, how, how would people get in touch with you if they're interested in, in finding more about you and, and staying, staying in touch? Like, are you open to getting in touch through LinkedIn? People hit you up on Twitter? Sure. We, uh, I'm on LinkedIn personally. I know Ted is also. Okay. You can also reach me at Howard at abcaonline.org. Any questions you have or comments, for sure. Yeah, and similarly, I'm happy to talk to any of your listeners. I mean, anytime, any, we're always interested in engaging with parties in the dialogue. You can reach me on LinkedIn. You can visit our website, www.abcaonline.org. And similar to, to our Howard here, available, Ted, at abcaonline.org. Awesome. Thank you both. Thank you. All right, thank you. Thank you for listening to a Bit podcast. A Bit podcast is hosted by Alain Leon, Dang Du, and myself, Jeff Peterson. Show notes are by our editor in chief, Dang Du. Show production and editing is done by the miracle maker, Joanna Marie Nicholas. Website is by Sammy Toucan and his team at Pack Surge Media. Remember, nothing we say in this show is meant to be financial advice. If you liked this episode, please share it with your friends and family. Thank you for listening, and remember, keep it cryptic.